How many of you here this morning are refugees from another church? Maybe you don't need to answer that. I don't know. Maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe let me ask that question slightly differently. How many of you here have experienced pain in another church? Um, how, how many of you have been in a church where, where things in the church weren't quite as they should be? Perhaps in a church where, where the care that you received was perhaps not the care that you needed. Or perhaps the care that somebody else needed didn't get what they actually needed. How many of you have been in a church where the leaders didn't do what they were supposed to do? Or been in a church where the leaders didn't do what you think they were supposed to do, which is not the same as the last question? <laughs> or been in a church where it's a bit of a click and you just never quite broke into that little exclusive group? Didn't ever quite fit in. Or, or being in a church where you're just disappointed with the direction the ministry of the church has taken. Where perhaps you feel that the church has got caught up in something else and it's just gone a little bit off mission. And you're meandering in perhaps the wrong direction. H how many of you are currently in that church? <laughs> How many of you know the church is not perfect? That it's made up of imperfect sinners who make lots of mistakes. And that the church leaders will often fail, and often they will fail spectacularly. That church and church members won't see eye to eye. That we won't always have the same opinions. There will be a difference of opinion, and most importantly, people will have opinions that are different to mine. Big problem there. And so, with that in mind, how many of us would love to go back to the ideal church, to the, the early church, as it was in its pure form, in its infancy? To be part of a church that was led by the apostles themselves. The apostle John, the apostle of love. Peter, that blue-collar guy. Who just, you know, you want to be part of that church with the guys who had been specifically trained by Jesus. That, that ideal infant state of the church that was as close to perfection as you, man, as you could imagine. And so, so we're going we're gonna to go there this morning to this ideal, perfect church. And Joe's going to read to us from Acts chapter 6 this morning. And we're going to just hear again of this perfect, ideal church that we'd all want to be part of. In those first few verses of Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch. 
a covet to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples of Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thanks, Joe. There is no perfect church. There has never been a perfect church. Such a thing does not exist. And to trot out that silly old line, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. Because you will mess it up, right? The perfect church is one that has no members, where I'm the only member, actually, where I get to preach as long as I like, without anyone saying, gee, Chris, you went on too long today. Where I can preach about what I like. Where I, I can do my sermon prep without pesky people phoning me and interrupting me for stuff. Actually, that's not true. I like people too much for that. Um, but, you know, in, in case you're wondering, the New Testament church was not a perfect church. And I, I have to giggle when people say, oh, if only we could go back to those days. And I've had people who say that to me. If only we could go back to the original New Testament as it was, this ideal church. And I'm like, have you not read the book of 1 Corinthians? Have you not read it? That's a disaster church. You don't want to go to that church. Have you not read Galatians? Where Paul starts by saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, what a great way to start a Sunday morning. You foolish waterfallians, right? The New Testament church was far from perfect, and as early as Acts chapter 6, which is within a year of the, 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 the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church had got a little messy. So here's what's happened in Acts chapter 6, right? The, the church is growing, and that's a good thing. The number of disciples was increasing. That's the first line that Joe read for us this morning, and that's a good thing. We want numbers to increase. Increased numbers, increased growth implies health. And, and who doesn't want health? Don't we want our church to grow? Wouldn't it be nice if all these seats in the middle were, were full? I feel like I'm at a bit of a tennis match this morning because there's no one in the center. Um, but wouldn't it be nice if the church grew, if, the church if this hall became too small and we had to knock out that back wall without telling the school what we're doing? Uh, wouldn't it be nice to do that? Because growth is good. Growth is healthy. And so looking at that opening verse, that opening line, You've got to say, yeah, this is great. We want to be part of a growing church, don't we? But growth comes with complications. And whether it's, and that's always the case. If you're growing your own business, and some of you guys who do your own business, you know how complicated that gets. When it was just you and a couple of clients, it was easy. But now as the business grows, you need a business manager, and you need a tax consultant to know how to dodge properly. Um, you need a driver who won't steal your truck. Or, or a growing family. You have a growing family. Growing families are a great thing. Have six kids. It's awesome. Growing families are great. But it becomes a little bit more complicated, doesn't it? Because suddenly you need an extra bedroom and you need to set up an extra education fund and the limited time that you have becomes even more limited because now there's more people to be split amongst. And, and the new baby is very exciting, except that the older children get ignored. So growth is great, but growth comes with challenges, with problems. 
And the early church is growing, and it's very exciting, and and every week there are new faces at the temple gathering, and there are new home groups springing up around the city of Jerusalem. It's so exciting. The church is starting to take on additional ministry as well. They're looking for ministry opportunities outside, and what they're doing is they're caring for widows, which is a wonderful thing to do. And I don't know, is it, are they caring for Christian widows who are part of the church, or are they care, taking care of widows outside of the church just as a ministry to those in need? I'm not sure which. But, but you just got to, uh, I mean, the, our little picture there, it's wonderful, right? They're, they're reaching out to their neighbors. They're showing love for one another. They're doing what the church is meant to do. They're caring for those who are vulnerable in society. They're looking after those who are on the edges because, you know, this back then, there was no social security, there was no pension funds, and um, if, if the husband died, the wife got nothing at all. And so she's relying either on her children to look after her or, 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 or the good graces of neighbors and other family members. So really, widows were on the edge. And if a widow doesn't have a son, she's in big trouble. Now she's relying on sons-in-law look after her. And some of you know what sons-in-laws are like. Um, and so, so these widows, these women are on the very edge of society, and the church is doing its best to reach out to them because this has been a wonderful ministry opportunity to show the gospel and to show the love of Christ. And can I say that we have been presented with a wonderful opportunity to show gospel care and neighborly love to those around us in these last couple of weeks. And it's been hard And yet it's been good to see how our church has, with our limited resources, responded. It was great to have eight or nine guys on Monday go out and build something for Emmanuel. It's been wonderful to see how many people have said, here's some money, buy some blankets, here's some food, please take it down and deliver it. It was great to hear of of people in our church this week who got involved in local charity organizations to pack packets and fill bags of food, because it doesn't just have to come out of the church itself, but that the church The church members, the church body is going into the community and assisting and being part of what's going on. And it's wonderful to see that we've we've been able to serve and to show acts of mercy to those who are vulnerable in our society at the moment. So well done to those of you who've done that. But in Acts chapter 6, you see that this comes with problems. And the problem is actually a little more complex than what it appears on the surface. Because on the surface, it appears that a bunch of widows are missing out on a daily meal, which is not great. So you've got this wonderful church that's growing, but there's a problem. There's, uh, it, 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 things are not functioning properly because some people who, sh- who need food are not getting it. But it actually hints to a bigger, deep, a couple of bigger, deeper issues beneath, behind it. You might remember that a couple of weeks ago, we read in Acts chapter 4 that people in the church were selling, some of them were selling their property, selling what they had, giving it to the apostles, and as a result of that, no one in the church had any need. And it was that, uh, that kind of that fulfillment of one of the kingdom promises of God, that back in the Old Testament, God had said, when the kingdom of God comes, there will be no need in the land, there will be no lack. And so, so you see in Acts chapter 4, a couple of months after the, the resurrection, that the kingdom of God has come. The promises of God's kingdom are being fulfilled because God's people have no lack. It's wonderful. And now, two, three months later, well, that's fallen apart. And now, instead of there being no lack, now there are people who are not getting what they need. 
So within a couple of months of everything being wonderful, we're in a place where things are not so great. And I think one of the problems is purely a problem of admin. The church has grown, and there's this breakdown in administration. Peter can fish, Peter can preach, but Peter can't count. I mean, their admin guy was Judas, right? And he's gone. You're like, where's Judas when you need him? But again, it's, it's bigger than just an admin issue. Because there appears to be two groups within the church already. Right? A year after the resurrection, the church has two distinct groups. There is a Greek and there is a Hebrew group. group. So here's how, here's, how, here's how things work. So, so at, at this point in the church's history, everybody in the church is Jewish. There are no Gentile converts to Christianity at this point. That's going to happen in a couple of chapters' time. For now, it's very much a sense of we're Jewish and we're Jewish Christians. But the Jewish nation, the Israelite nation, have been scattered around the world for centuries. And so you've got some, some Jewish people who've been born and raised in Jerusalem. And having been born and raised in Jerusalem, they speak Aramaic. They are Culturally, they remain Jewish. But then there have been other Jewish people who have scattered to the nations of the world and who have grown up in Italy and in France and in Algeria and in Syria and who knows wherever else. And their first language is Greek. And they're culturally Greek. And now those people have come back to Jerusalem because, hey, we all want to die in Jerusalem because that's the center of God's kingdom, right? And so these, these scattered Jewish people have come back home, but it's a bit like Brandon coming home. He's no longer South African. He's now Dutch. <laughs> and it's just a bit messy. And so you've got these two groups within the church, a group that is, they're both Jewish, but one speaks Greek, dresses in Greek clothes, listens to Greek music, watches Greek TV, and another group that speaks Aramaic, Dresses like they did 2,000 years ago when Moses brought them out of the wilderness. And, and these two groups, uh, it's not perfect. And historians tell us that at this time in Jerusalem, there were about five or six synagogues in the city. And of those five or six synagogues, three of them were Greek. And so you could go to either a Greek synagogue or a, a Hebrew, Aramaic synagogue. And if you went to the Greek synagogue, the, the readings would be in Greek, the prayers would be in Greek, the benediction would be in Greek, the sermon would be in Greek. And if you went to the Aramaic one, it would all be in Hebrew. And so even in Judaism, you've got these two groups. Now these two groups are becoming part of the church, and you've got these two groups in the church. And so it seems that when it comes to food distribution to the widows in need, those who are culturally Jewish are getting the lion's share. All, all kinds of reasons for that. Maybe the Greek-speaking people just lived further away, and by the time they got there, the Jewish widows had taken it all home, right? Maybe the message had gone out on the WhatsApp group in Aramaic, and the Greek speakers couldn't understand what was being said. Or it could actually have been that there really was a, a bias toward Hebraic Jewish widows, intentionally or unintentionally. 
But whatever the reason, it's not a good look for the early church. But again, it goes even deeper than that. Because we read that, that, that there's a group of people that complain about the lack of food. And in fact, the word that they use is that they're murmuring. They're murmuring about lack of food. And murmuring is such a lovely word, isn't it? It's that in the background. And where you know that something's off, but you can't quite hear what's being said. It's that mumble, mumble, mumble of, of, of dissatisfaction and unhappiness. And it's actually the same word that was used to describe how the people in, in the desert, the Israelite people in the desert, murmured against Moses when they didn't have enough food or they didn't have enough water or they're tired of being in the desert or the sun's too hot or the nights are too cold or whatever the case may be. It's that murmuring, that mumbling, that in the background. But here in Acts, it's not that there's a group of people murmuring against the leaders, which is kind of interesting because the leaders are the ones who've mucked up a little bit here. But what you've got going on is that there's a group of people murmuring against another group of people. And you've got the Greek-speaking Jews murmuring against the Hebrew-speaking Christians. And so in Acts chapter 6, within a year of the resurrection, within a, a year of the coming of the Holy Spirit, you have got this, this, these two groups, and you've got this us versus them division in the church. And so on a Sunday morning, there's very clearly a middle gap, and you've got one bunch of people sitting on this side and the other sitting on that side, and they're murmuring against each other. And so you've got the, this division, which is a division along racial, ethnic, cultural lines. In Judaism, I mentioned earlier that, that there was this idea that those who stayed in Jerusalem, who lived in Jerusalem, who were born in Jerusalem, were, were more favored by God. They were the special people, even though Jeremiah told them that that's not the case. They still live with this idea. And so those of Greek culture who come from far away perhaps feel like outsiders. They feel excluded. They feel prejudiced against They've started their very own Greek Lives Matter group. And we get the sense of the very first Christian denominations in these verses. In fact, if we'd read a little bit further, you read about the, the synagogue of the freed men. And so you've got, you've got synagogues giving themselves denominational titles, and a lot of the Christians were still part of those synagogues. So, so you've got this sense of denominationalism, this separation, this division starting in the early church. So again, it's more than just the leaders haven't got their admin together. There's a racial, cultural undertow that's resulted in a murmuring against them, against that group, against those people. And this is the ideal church led by the apostles, filled by the Spirit of God, who themselves have been trained by Jesus. Still want to go there? We don't want to hear this, but it's true, right? There is no perfect church. And allow me to apologize in advance. You will be hurt in this church. You will be offended in this church. I will try to not deliberately do that. It's not my intention. You will at some point be disappointed with your pastor. He will not do what you think he should be doing every now and then. And sometimes he won't even be doing what he should be doing. 
So prepare to be let down and disappointed. It may make things a little easier when it actually happens. The solution, though, the good thing about this church in Acts is that they actually do manage to resolve the problem. And, and what they do, they display in, in their action that they're actually a Baptist church. And you know they're a Baptist church because they call a church meeting and establish a committee, which Baptists are great at doing. Let's have a church meeting and let's put together a committee. I'm pretty sure they had coffee and biscuits as well. But there's a real insight into how the church functioned in this, isn't there? It's interesting that the apostles don't come in as, we're the big guns, we're going to make a decision, we're going to tell you what to do, we're going to make this ruling, and we're going to fix it. The apostles don't do that. Despite being apostles, which is kind of like level up from pastors and elders, right? They don't just come in and exercise their authority and do whatever. They call a meeting of all the disciples. That's a big meeting. Um, I'm not sure if it was just representatives of the different home groups that get together, or if it literally was thousands of people on Saturday afternoon outside the temple trying to hold a discussion. I'm not quite sure how it worked, but we're told they called all the disciples together for a meeting to solve the problem. And the twelve do give direction to the meeting. The twelve outline what they see their job to be. And I guess in doing that, they're acknowledging that we've got some things wrong. They use some interesting words, and again, our English Bibles kind of make things a little vaguer. But they say, we've been called to serve the Word. And we can't serve the Word and serve the table at the same time. And so it's the same thing, right? Serving the Word or serving the table. They're not saying one job's better than the other, but they're just saying we can't do both. We can't do both. I would imagine, it's this whole thing of growth brings complexity, right? I would imagine that in the early days, um, when the church was really small, the 12 preached, the 12 prayed, the 12 visited, the 12 evangelized, the 12 poured the tea, the 12 did the flower arranging, the 12 organized the building committee, the 12 drove the donkey for the meals on Hooves ministry in the city. Right? The 12 just do what needs to be done, right? But then the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And a lot of people, I think they're probably right, see in this passage a very basic outline of the essential calling of a pastor and the pastor's job. And I know this, there's a little bit more than it too there, but, but I like the sense of what is given here. that These guys are called to the service, and it is a service, not a job. It is the service of preaching and prayer. And I have to think that the, the primary calling of any pastor is to preach and to pray. Is there more to it? There certainly is. Uh, we, we are, we're certainly called to, to shepherd the flock, and pastors will do lots of other things. I made soup for church camp yesterday. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, well, actually, we'll see next week. Um, but at its core, the job of the pastor is to preach and to pray. And it seems like the apostles are saying, here, yeah, look, you know, again, this whole thing, there are two kinds of serving. But the, the apostles are saying we can't serve everywhere. And so we, we must give our attention to this. And so I do, I see my primary role in our church is to preach and to pray. I do a bit more than that. But I, I don't want to compromise on the preaching. I want to give my attention 
in this area to make this the best thing that I can do. I believe that one of the best ways that I can serve our church is to faithfully preach God's word. And I've got to say, I find it a little disappointing when I see in, in many churches today that, that many pastors seem to be much more like marketing executives or, or CEOs. And it's not to say that we don't need that in the church. I just wonder if that's really what the primary calling of a pastor is. If it's just to organize and to market and to, you know, I think the, the, the calling is to preach. And I know not all pastors are great in the pulpit, but it certainly should be the emphasis of all pastors. And not only to preach, but to pray. To public and private prayer. Again, should be the massive emphasis of the pastors of a church. And again, I wish I was better at this. But a pastor that gets by with very little prayer will have to get by with very little power. That's just how it goes. And so the call from these apostles is, listen, we have this job, we have this, this calling, but let's fix this other one. And here's how we're going to do that. You fix it. <laughs> you do it. You, you come up with a plan. You choose. And they say, we think seven guys would be enough, but you choose who those people are going to be. We're not going to, we're not, not going to tell you how, it's, how, how to do this. We think choose a few guys who are full of the Holy Spirit, who are full of wisdom, who have got a good reputation, so heavenly minded that they really are earthly good, and so the church do. The church choose seven people. The church choose seven guys from amongst themselves. So these guys are the ones that we think can be best, are best suited to this somewhat administrative task of serving at tables. And what's interesting is that all seven men chosen have Greek names. And one of them was, even, was not even born Jewish. He was born Greek, I guess, and converted to Judaism, and now from Judaism has become Christian. And you've got to think that, I mean, I don't know, but it's possible that the, the majority of people in the church are Aramaic, Hebrew-speaking um, Jews. And this body of Aramaic, Hebrew-speaking Jews has chosen Greek-speaking Jews to deal with this issue. Can you see how that is an expression of love? towards the guys on the other side, to their Greek-speaking counterparts, and how that would diffuse the situation, that the Greek-speaking church now goes, we think our voices will be heard. And people have stepped in and relieved the apostles of some of the burden of ministry. And although the word isn't actually used here, these seven guys are kind of a proto-deacon, right? They're the forerunners of what a deacon will be called to serve. And they're commissioned and set free to take care of serving at tables, distributing the food to those who are in the very edges of society. And the job must go to those who have the gift and who have the ability. And we've seen it in our church over the years and over the last couple of weeks that there are some who are just moved with compassion and there are some who just, just know what to do in a crisis and who just step in and get it done. And I've just got to say, go and do it. If that's what your calling is, go and do it. Don't murmur. Just get the job done. Right? Someone needs visiting? Go visit. Don't murmur. Go and visit. Someone needs a meal? Cook them a meal. Get it done. And there is a very cool result to all of this. 
At the end of this, we see those, those last, that last verse that the word of God spread. The word of God spread. And it says, and so, and that and so implies that the spreading of the word is connected and somehow to what's just happened. So here's, here's, what, here's how it goes, right? The apostles are, are freed up to preach. And so what happens? They preach. They get to do what they're called to do. And their preaching gets better. And the word of God spreads. And the numbers increase rapidly, which is going to lead to more problems. Right, so we started with the numbers have increased. We finished with the numbers increased rapidly. It's led to even bigger growth. And do you see where some of that growth comes from? A large number of priests become obedient to the faith. So here's the religious leaders of the Jewish faith, and they're converting. They're going, yep, Jesus is a Messiah. These are the guys who are serving in the temple, who are offering the sacrifices, who are do, performing the, the cleansing rituals. And they're coming to faith in Jesus. And I do wonder if something of that conversion has to do with the feeding of widows. Because, see, that was one of the commands in the Old Testament that we're to care for widows. James tells us later on the New Testament that caring for widows and orphans is true religion. And I wonder if these priests saw the church doing what they knew deep down inside that they should be doing themselves. I wonder if they saw the church doing what they knew the Sanhedrin were meant to be doing. That the church was demonstrating true religion as it was meant to be. And the result of what they see, they come to faith in Jesus. And so there's that whole thing of, of how, in our little picture, these arrows that are connecting all of the things together, that, that loving our neighbor results in evangelism, mission, which brings people to worship God, which causes us to love one another. It, it, the connections of this all work. As the priests see love being displayed, the priests are drawn into the faith and worship Jesus, their Lord and Savior. And so do you see how a church that cares for widows leads to an increase in numbers? Can, can you see how an, un, um, an imperfect church, filled with, with tension, with racial and cultural tension, with frustration and unhappiness, with murmuring, with ineffective leaders, can still be used by God to impact the community? Can you see how God can use even us, even you, in your imperfections, to change the world. And when we really are the church, with our warts and our wrinkles on display, but we're doing what we're called to do, even in imperfect ways, and when people are freed up to do what they're called to do, and to go and serve, do you see how even in our perfections, God uses our service to save the world? So what about you this morning? Two things in response to this. Number one, the apostles of the early church very clearly saw the importance of prayer and the Bible. Is that true of you? Do you also see the importance of prayer and the Bible? And you're not an apostle, nor am I. But the apostles set the standard of prayer and the Bible as vital. Is prayer and the Bible a significant portion of your life. We're shaped 
by what we absorb. And I said this a few weeks ago that we, um, we're like a car, right? We, we, we go out through the week and we hit the potholes and we drive over speed bumps and we, I don't know, swerve to miss a taxi and hit a lamppost and, and our wheels get out of alignment and if we leave them, they'll run, they'll run bald and you'll die. And so we need to get your car in for realignment every now and then. Part of the reason that we come to church is to realign ourselves with God's word because we are being fed and shaped by the world around us every day of the week. And the message that we hear from the world shapes us and defines us and moves us. And we need to be reminded that what the world tells us is not what God calls us to be. But it's not just about coming to church on a Sunday morning, but it's allowing God's word to shape you every day of the week. Is the word and prayer a significant part of your life? And then secondly, are you serving at a table somewhere? And I know that serving at a table might sound like it's beneath your dignity. Oh no, I don't serve at tables. I sit at a table and get served, right? I go to spur and the waitress comes to me, not the other way around. And uh, when it comes to the church, I want to sit in my chair and I'd like someone to serve me and present me with a good meal. I run my own company. I'm all grown up. I have people who serve me. I sit in my home and they bring me coffee. That's why I had children, right? The whole purpose of children is that they can bring me coffee. But who are you serving? Are you serving in our community? Or are you just sitting at the table waiting to be waited on? Every now and then I suggest this is a stupid thing to do. Go and pour someone else a cup of coffee today. I take mine with just a little bit of milk, no sugar. Um, <laughs> how many can I drink? Um, who can you serve this week? Which table can you serve at? Who can you serve? Who are the marginalized on the edges of society that need your help? And right now, that question really shouldn't take much time to think about. The answer to that question is surely fairly obvious right now. And so the call here is, get to work for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the kingdom. Let the word of God and prayer shape you so that you can serve and serve at tables beneath your dignity for the sake of the kingdom, so that the kingdom of God will grow. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. And thank you that back in Acts 6, 2,000 years ago, the apostles were in this place of real danger where they could have been distracted from the job that you had given them. They could have neglected the word in order to make sure that everybody got a hot meal. The church could so easily have got off mission and lost sight of itself and become nothing more than just a big charity organization. Thank you, Lord, that your church keeps the word at the center. That the gospel drives us but that your gospel calls us to serve at tables and to sometimes provide hot meals. Lord, may we be a people of prayer and the word. That we would, um, as we pray, 
find our strength and the power of the Spirit filling us. That as we read your word, it would transform us and shape us into the image of your Son. And that as we continue to grasp the gospel, that it would drive us out to serve, to let go of some of our dignity, to help those in need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, folk. Go and give someone else a cup of coffee.